The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning. Let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his help. Father, we confess that we need your help. We ask that we, you would open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things in your law. May we behold Jesus in all his glory, his splendor, his sovereignty, as we open this text, and may our hearts and our minds be transformed as we gaze upon Jesus and his goodness. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Around the year 1716, a nine-year-old Charles Wesley received an unexpected visitor from Ireland, a long-distant wealthy relative named Garrett Wesley. Garrett came all the way from Ireland to England to give the young boy Charles a once-in-a-lifetime offer. And the offer was this, for Charles, nine-year-old Charles, to be eventually the heir of Garrett's immense fortune in Ireland and to receive the best education as possible. Now, the nine-year-old boy Charles has a dilemma here. Should he leave his parents, his godly parents in England, and go to Ireland? After some deliberation, Charles says a simple word to Garrett. And the simple answer is no. And yet that no is big no because it shaped Charles's life and it shaped also Garrett Wesley and his heir's life. Instead of offering that once-in-a-lifetime proposal to Charles, Garrett offered that to Richard, Charles's cousin, Richard Colley. Richard Colley would eventually become the grandfather of Arthur Wellesley, who was the Duke of Wellington, who defeated his army, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, in 1815, Battle of Waterloo, leaving Napoleon and France defeated. That could have been Charles Wesley, but by God's sovereignty and providence, he used that no in Charles's life to direct his life. So instead of Charles becoming the grandfather of Duke of Wellington, becoming a wealthy man in Ireland, Charles became eventually a minister of the gospel of England. And as we note today, one of the greatest hymn writers of all time, composing nearly 9,000 hymns, some of which we sing today, and can it be, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And yet that's what God had for Charles. His path was ordained by God. I think this historical account underscores the fact that God was sovereign over every minute detail of Charles West's life, even the no of a nine-year-old boy. In our passage this morning, the author Luke, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records an account that demonstrates in very specific, compelling ways that God is sovereign over all the minutia of his people's lives and that he is actively at work in every situation to accomplish his sovereign purposes for his people. So the main point of this passage this morning is this. Jesus Christ is sovereign over all things. Therefore, no one, no one will be able to stop or thwart his mission. Jesus Christ is sovereign over all things and no one will be able to stop or to thwart his mission. Jesus will accomplish his mission and purposes for his church. Nothing will be able to stop that 
Luke's point in this passage this morning is that it is futile. It is futile to try to stop Jesus' plans and mission. In this passage, the enemies of Paul and of the gospel tried, but miserably and ultimately failed. So my aim this morning is to trace and to walk through this journey of the sovereignty of God that is full in this text by observing how God preserves Paul and prepares him for his journey ultimately to Rome. This passage is both a reminder and a comfort to God's people of all time that he indeed is control of every situation of our lives. He right now is working out his sovereign plan in his time for your good, the good of his people, and for his glory. Let me remind us for a moment where we've been at in this series of the book of Acts. Last week we considered Paul's defense speech to the Jews in Jerusalem recorded in chapter 22, the prior chapter to this. At the end of the speech in verse 22 of chapter 22, the Jews demand that Paul be executed. Away with him, they said. But the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, has Paul arrested and then learns that Paul was a Roman citizen. That's in verse 28 of chapter 22. It's also important to go at the 40,000-foot level and see the overarching theme of the book of Acts. And we go to the very first verse of Acts 1, verse 1, where Luke says this, the purpose of this book. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. You see, what transpires in our text this morning is the continuing sovereign work of Jesus Christ, accomplishing his mission for the church, his mission to save and call people from every tribe, nation, and language to himself. Jesus is present in this text both explicitly, as we'll discover in a moment, and implicitly in the narrative of this text. So this passage is divided into three scenes. Scene one can be found in verse 30 of chapter 22 up to verse 11 in chapter 23. And that scene describes Paul's defense speech, his second defense speech, to the Sanhedrin, the council in Jerusalem. Scene two is a description of a sinister conspiracy to kill Paul. That's in verses 12 through 22. And finally, scene three, Paul is given a Roman military escort from Jerusalem to Caesarea. That's verses 23 to 35. As we consider each of these scenes, I want us to take note how Luke, as a good historian, chronologically traces the plot through time markers in the text alternating between day and night. Let's look at, for example, verse 30 of chapter 22. Notice how Luke gives us a time marker there on the next day. In chapter 23, verse 11, he indicates the time of the day as being night, the following night. The next verse, Luke indicates when it was day, daytime. And then finally, in verse 23 of chapter 23, he indicates that it is the third hour of the night, which is also repeated uh, in verse 31. And the third hour of the night would be local time, 9 o'clock p.m. In other words, the overarching part of this narrative is that God is sovereign in each scene and through different times of the day, day, night, day and night. God is in control of this narrative completely, whether it be the daytime or the nighttime. In other words, God's sovereignty is always awake. It doesn't sleep. So scene one, Chapter 22 and verse 30 gives us a description of this beginning of the first scene with the calling of a meeting. So the first scene begins with Lysias, 
the Roman tribune, and we learn his name later on, chapter 3. Claudius Lysias is his name. He's a Roman tribune, and he calls a meeting with a Jewish council, also called the Sanhedrin, to determine what to do with Paul. He's at a loss. What should we do with Paul? Because Paul's being accused from, by Jews. Paul's audience then in this chapter is not the general public as it was in chapter 22, the Jewish audience. In this case, it's the religious elite of his day. It's almost such as a doctoral defense or doctoral thesis where he's standing in front of the elite scholars of your day and you're giving an argument or a defense of your thesis, in this case, a defense of his faith. So the Sanhedrin was composed of the Jewish priests, highly educated men, the elite Old Testament scholars of his day. And as we learn in chapter 23, verse 6, the Sanhedrin includes members of two parties or two sects, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we remember them from the Gospels where Jesus, Jesus interacts with them. This meeting was most likely a pre-trial meeting or an informal consultation rather than an actual trial. Nevertheless, Paul takes this seriously and he believes that this is an opportunity to defend his faith in the Gospel. So Paul's speech begins properly in verse 1. And this is a second defense speech. This first one was in the prior chapter, 22, and his second defense speech is here, beginning in verse 1. The speech that is recorded is actually quite brief, only totaling two verses. That's a small speech, at least the recorded version of it. That's verse 1 and verse 6 are the content of the actual speech. And the structure of this meeting scene is actually arranged in two sections, each section following a very similar pattern that Luke has organized here. For example, look at verse 1 where Paul gives his introduction to his speech, and it's abruptly interrupted in verse 2 by Ananias, the high priest, followed by some dialogue between different parties. This is verses 2 through 5. So that structure then is repeated again in verse 6, where Paul resumes his speech and appeals to the Pharisees, but then again he's rudely, abruptly interrupted in verse 7, this time not by Ananias, but by a dissension between the two parties, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, with, again, subsequent dialogue. That's verses 7 through 10. So Luke is walking through an organized system there of speech, interruption, resuming a speech, and interruption again. Now let's go back to verse 1 for a moment, Paul's introduction to his speech, where Paul declares not only his innocence of his conscience before the council, but most importantly, he declares his innocence before God. Look with me at verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. His affirmation is not one of haughtiness or sinlessness, but of a firm conviction that his conduct and his conscience before God is clear and in keeping with God's calling upon his life and to the mission which he has been entrusted with. So he's denying the charges and the slander raised against him in chapter 22 by the Jews. Remember from last week, charges of being anti-Jew, anti-law, and anti-temple. He's refuting those charges here in chapter 23. But then he's rudely interrupted by the high priest Ananias in verse 2. Look at verse 2. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now there's essentially nothing in the historical records regarding this man Ananias, but one brief description of him by the historian Josephus gives us a little bit window of this man's character. Josephus called Ananias a cruel, quick-tempered man, which really complements well what we see here in verse 2 of ordering or commanding Paul's mouth to be struck. And then a dialogue ensues in which Paul rebukes Ananias 
and says this in verse 3. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, that phrase whitewashed wall probably should sound familiar to us in a couple portions of Scripture. Paul at this point could be referencing in his, in his thought Ezekiel chapter 13 verse 10 in which Ezekiel is using the whitewashed wall metaphor to refer to Israel's hypocrisy. Paul also rightly points out that Ananias had not adhered to the civil law and having the defendant struck. That was against the law. That was against the procedures of the council. But then Paul was rebuked by the members of the council for this rebuke with a rhetorical question. Look at verse 4. Would you revile God's high priest? Paul responds to this in verse 5 and says this. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. Now, how should we interpret Paul's response in verse 5? Did Paul have poor eyesight and didn't recognize that Ananias was the high priest? Or did Paul have a fit of anger and commit sin, as some would allege? I think the best way to understand Paul's response in verse 5 is that he did indeed know that this was Ananias, the high priest. And his, he, his response is one of irony and sarcasm, suggesting that the high priest's conduct was not befitting his office and the conduct of a priest. So Paul's rebuke of the high priest should remind us immediately of Jesus' own rebuke of the religious leaders of his day. Do you remember what Jesus called the religious leaders of his day in Matthew 23? Whitewashed tombs, blind guides, blind fools, vipers. Hardly flattering terms, right? Jesus and Paul were not having fits of anger or sinning, but they were giving firm rebukes to religious leaders who were not fulfilling God's law in keeping with appropriate conduct of biblical authority. Following this interaction, Paul resumes his speech again. Look at verse 6. He resumes it by saying these things. Brothers, and notice how often he's saying the word brothers. He's using very personal rhetorical skills in endearing himself to the, his audience, in this case the council, in respectful ways. Brothers, in verse 6, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And then he argues that the crux of the matter and the reason for his examination is ultimately the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Verse 6. Now, the subject of the resurrection is a prominent theme in the book of Acts. In fact, Luke uses the word resurrection 10 times, a total 10 times in the book of Acts. That's more than any other New Testament book. Now, Paul had previously preached about the resurrection in Athens. Recall that from a few weeks ago. In chapter 17, Paul is defending the resurrection in front of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, which mock him for his belief in the resurrection of the dead. And then later on, actually the next chapter, next week, Acts 24, in his defense speech before Felix, Paul defends the resurrection in his third defense speech. What Paul is stressing here in this phrase, resurrection, hope and resurrection of the dead, is that the opposition and persecution toward him is because of the gospel, which includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christians to eternal life, which is a key fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. So Paul recognizes here this is not a petty issue. This is on trial for the sake of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul understood the gravity of that here in verse 6. But Paul then is interrupted again, second time. Verse 7, this time it's a dissension between the two religious sects, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and that's spurred on by Paul's statement that I am a Pharisee and the son of the Pharisees. 
which leads to the Pharisees becoming sympathetic toward Paul and even beginning defending him and declaring his innocence. Look at verse 9. We find nothing wrong in this man. And this is the Pharisees that are saying this. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? The Sadducees who didn't accept the doctrine of resurrection, of course, become indignant with Paul's message of the resurrection and a dissension ensues and gets out of hand to the point where the soldiers have to literally manhandle and carry Paul out of the space in verse 10 and get him in safety into the barracks. And that leads to the end of scene one, a very chaotic scene with the interruptions, with the dissension and the dialogue going on. Verse 11 ends this first scene with a completely different ethos. Look with me at verse 11. So in the barrack cell where Paul's kept, there's a pivotal moment. I think verse 11 is a pivotal moment in this passage and probably for the rest of the book of Acts on which the remainder of the book of Acts swings. In verse 11, the Lord appears to Paul in the barracks. Now this is the last of the four personal encounters that Paul has with the Lord Jesus in the book of Acts. Let me remind us for a moment those encounters briefly. The first encounter, of course, is Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. That's Acts 9. His second encounter with the Lord Jesus is in Acts 18, where the Lord appeared to Paul in the vision and encouraged him to continue preaching to the Christians and non-Christians at Corinth. The third encounter was last week in Acts 22. Paul recounted his vision with Jesus immediately before he was arrested in Jerusalem. And then this final and fourth encounter where the Lord stands by Paul in the barracks in Jerusalem. Now, Notice the verb here, the Lord stood by Paul. I think that's really significant there. It's the only reference to the Lord standing by Paul of these four encounters. It's really significant. The Lord's posture of standing communicates a personal interest, a personal relationship, and personal comfort to Paul. Now, maybe you can identify with Paul, maybe not in this barrack situation, but have you ever been in a difficult place like Paul? It's comforting to have someone close, a close friend, a spouse, uh, a relative, to stand by your side, put his or her arm around you, and to encourage you. This is essentially what the Lord does in a dark moment in Paul's life. And the Lord encourages him with these words. Listen to these words of the Lord Jesus. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And the remaining chapters of the book of Acts records this very promise, you must stand before Caesar. And it's going to unpack in the next few chapters how the Lord protects Paul and brings him safely to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. The Lord kept his promise to Paul. The big picture of that, think about it for a moment. Take the 40,000 foot view again here for a moment. Jesus' mission for Paul to ultimately preach the gospel in the capital of Rome, the Roman Empire, is going to be realized by the end of the book of Acts. Because the Lord preserves Paul in this chapter from the conspirators in Jerusalem, which we'll discover in a moment, Paul was able to arrive unscathed in the capital city and to preach the gospel in Rome. The big picture of Jesus' sovereignty and mission becomes evident when we see what happens in the final two verses of the book of Acts. Listen to these two verses, or feel free to turn there. Chapter 28, verses 30 to 31. This is where this narrative is going. He, Paul, lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And we also know from Philippians 4.22 that those within Caesar's own household had become Christians. 
The gospel was being embraced by the household of the Roman Emperor Claudius, who was a very wicked man according to historical texts. But the big picture is that Jesus is preserving Paul for the sake of these future Christians in Rome and Caesar's household in particular to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's God's sovereignty at work, preserving Paul in this narrative, encouraging him and keeping his promises so that the gospel would be deposited in Rome so that others, including the cruel household of Claudius, to come to Jesus Christ. As Jesus was with Paul during this pretrial meeting and in the barracks in uncertain, challenging times, so Jesus is with us today in challenging seasons of life. Even in the valleys and the storms, Jesus is faithful and Jesus is with us. Jesus has promised that he will be with his disciples always until the end of the age, Matthew 28. Jesus will never forsake his own. He will never forsake you when people oppose you for your faith in the workplace or in your own family. Jesus will never leave you in your struggles and challenges. Just as the Lord is working and was working out a larger plan for Paul to go to Rome and preach the gospel. So God has a larger plan for you in the midst of your barracks moment in the valley of your own life. Well, the scene continues, or a scene, another scene happens, scene number two, verses 12 through 22, where Luke details a sinister conspiracy, a sinister plot to kill Paul. Now, the next two scenes contain all the elements and suspense of a spy drama, similar to a CIA or FBI op. Uh, There's a secret conspiracy in here. There's an attempted murder plan. There's a secret pact, an interception of the secret plan by a lone spy, the relaying of the message of said spy, and a confidential evacuation involving a really large military escort. And there are twists and turns in this plot, as well as some ironies as well. Now, this scene consists of two parts. Verses 12 through 15, the conspiracy, and then verses 16 through 22, divine intervention. In the conspiracy description, Paul is in the barracks as a prisoner, and a sinister conspiracy is hatched by more than 40 Jewish conspirators. You can see that in verses 13 and 14. They not only concoct an evil plan, but they confirm it with an oath, abstinence from food and drink. Now that's a serious oath to engage in. Let me show you how serious they were to, to uh, kill this man. So who was their target? Paul. What was their mission? To kill, to murder Paul. And the plot thickens when the 40 plus conspirators make a secret pact with some members of the council, the Sanhedrin. That's not supposed to happen in Jewish law. Perhaps the Sadducees who hate Paul uh, were in on this and there's a, there's a pretense given that, oh, we'd like to hear Paul again. But in the meantime, their plan includes an ambush, a hiding ambush to kill Paul as he approaches the council's meeting place. But Jesus, the sovereign Jesus who stood by Paul in verse 11, who made the promise that I will protect you on the way to Rome, is at work here. Implicit in this narrative, even though you don't see Jesus' name here in this scene, Jesus' sovereignty is implicit. While the conspirators had a mission to kill Paul, Jesus also had a mission. And that's what the 40 plus conspirators did not consider. And it was to protect Paul so that he could safely arrive in Rome and preach the gospel to win people to Jesus in Rome. At the right time and in the right place, Paul's nephew, probably only a boy, overhears the scheme of the conspirators. You see that in verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and he entered the barracks and he told Paul. And eventually news goes to the tribune 
And the tribune starts a plan of, as we'll see in scene three in a moment, to protect Paul on the way to Caesarea. Jesus overrules and overturns the evil plans of the men in this passage. Now there's an irony here. I love the ironies that Luke brings into the, the plot. The irony is this. In the foiling and diverting of this conspiracy, many adult men were involved in this, 40 plus, plus the Sanhedrin council members, compared to one lone boy spy. Yet they can't outdo Jesus' sovereignty using a lone boy spy. The interception of the secret plan was not a mere coincidence. It wasn't just happenstance, right place, right time. It was the sovereign act of Jesus right there in the barracks cell to intercept this evil plan. God completely disarms Paul's enemies and they fail miserably and they don't get to satiate their desires to murder Paul because Jesus was on the throne. The scene where the plot continues was scene three in verses 23 through 35 where Paul is given a Roman military escort from Jerusalem to Caesarea. In this remarkable final scene, the Lord's sovereignty is on full glorious display. Luke unpacks first the details of the foiling of the conspiracy. And again, Jesus' promise to Paul in verse 11 is now being fulfilled. The Lord uses the Roman military to protect Paul and to transport him safely. And you can see that in scene three, the journeys from different cities there. The Lord is keeping his promise to Paul in verse 11. Even though the Lord is not going to especially mention by name in this section, this scene is evident that the Lord is keeping his promise to Paul and protecting him on his ultimate journey to Rome. The scene demonstrates what Charles Haddon Spurgeon called the punctuality of divine providence. I like that term. Providence is always punctual. God is never absent. God is never tardy. God is never MIA, missing in action. God is always there. In fact, this reminds me of a question in the children's shorter catechism, a catechism that we use in our own family. Highly recommend it. Question number 10 asks a simple but yet profound question. Where is God? And the answer is simple yet profound. God is everywhere. God is everywhere. He sees the entire scene. He's not missing He's present in this text. It's a deeply comforting reality even for us today. Now, this scene is divided into three main sections. First of all, look at verses 23 and 24. You see Lysias' instructions as a tribune giving instructions to what the military escort should look like. We'll see that in a moment. Lysias' letter to Felix, verses 25 to 30, an official letter that's given to the governor of Judea, Felix. And then lastly, verses 31 to 35, Paul is transported from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Now, I want to point out Luke's attention to specific details such as numbers, geographical locations, political nuances, is demonstrative of good historical work. And these details are not insignificant for this narrative. Luke implements all these minutia details to indicate that Christ is sovereign over every single detail, night, day, armies, governors, regions. This scene that demonstrates that Lord is providentially at work using a Roman tribune, two centurions, 200 Roman soldiers, 70 Roman horsemen, 200 spearmen, and a Roman governor. That's all in chapter 23, verses 23 to 35. The destination of this journey was Caesarea. 
So in order for Paul to escape this ambush where Alysius Tribune wants to get him out from Jerusalem from this, Caesarea is the Roman capital of the Judean province. And this is the strategic port city on the Mediterranean Sea where Felix lives. And this is where, in chapter 24 next week, Paul is going to present his third defense speech in front of Governor Felix. Now the distance of this, it's hard for us in our Western world to appreciate distances and travel back in this day of the Roman Empire, but Paul's transport from Jerusalem to Caesarea was northwesterly approximately 70 miles in distance. Now that's approximately the same distance from this north campus to St. Cloud. Uh, again, northwesterly direction. But this journey was made not in one fell swoop, but in two stages. So you see this in verse 31, where they leave around 9 o'clock at night, third hour of night, and they journey from the first stage, Jerusalem, to Antipatris, which is 40 miles. So it's a little bit more than half the journey, 40 miles. They stay there overnight, probably a three to four hour uh, horseback ride. Again, think about horseback. And then the next day, Antipatris to Caesarea, was a distance of 30 miles, again, northwesterly. Now, in this scene, there's another irony. There's ironies everywhere in the scene. And the irony is this, that the Jews, God's chosen people, who opposed Paul and sought to kill him, at least some of them did, they tried with all their might, all their cunning, all their ingenuity to kill Paul and to stop Jesus' mission, yet it was the pagan Romans that Jesus decides to use as God's instruments in executing Jesus' mission and in protecting Paul. And the Romans were God's instruments on a large scale in this scene. So take note of some of the components of this scene, of this military escort. Notice that this military escort is trying to bring Paul safely. In fact, Luke emphasizes three separate times in this scene how that is being done. For example, I'll look at verse 24. There is a command to bring him, Paul, safely to Felix the governor. Uh, look at verse 27. There's a reference to Lysias in his letter to Felix that he rescued Paul. And thirdly, in verse 35, he, Felix, commanded Paul to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So there's an act of guarding and protecting by the Romans, but of course under the sovereign control of Jesus Christ himself. Consider for a moment the sheer number of people escorting a single individual Paul. Paul's just one man, but he's escorted by almost 500 Roman soldiers. That number of soldiers would have been probably half of the 1,000 Roman soldiers that were stationed in the garrison as a cohort in Jerusalem. So there's a call for half of the army to leave Jerusalem to be with one man. That's, that's God's sovereignty involved. Uh, think about maybe the modern equivalent perhaps of this would be a Christian, single Christian being escorted by a convoy of marine soldiers, uh, maybe Humvees and, and instead of spears, soldiers with assault rifles guarding the Christian. Uh, this is quite extreme here. But the point is that Lysias the Tribune took the threat of an ambush so seriously and that God was at work in orchestrating the Roman military unit in Jerusalem to protect his servant so that he could ultimately bring the gospel to Rome 2,500 miles away from Caesarea. That is remarkable. And that is God's sovereignty. Now, did God have to use all these military resources? The horsemen, the horses, the spearmen, the soldiers? Of course not. But he chose to do it for his own sovereign purposes. God did this to show that ultimately he was in control. He was calling the shots of the mighty Roman Empire, not Rome. In other words, God is bigger 
than the Roman Empire. He's bigger than any earthly empire. God is greater than Lysias, the tribune. God is greater than two centurions. God is greater than Felix. God is greater than the most powerful man on the earth at this time, which is Emperor Claudius. Don't miss this, Bethlehem. Rome thought that it was invincible, but Luke details in this narrative that God uses the Roman political and military system to accomplish his purposes for the growth and the expansion of the early church. And the history of the early church, even outside the Bible, demonstrate that reality, that God was not allowing his church to be swallowed up by his enemies. Though Felix, the governor, practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, in the words of the Roman historian Tacitus, God still used Felix. This passage affirms that there is no king, no Caesar, there is no governor, there's no soldier, there's no centurion, there's no horseman, there's no spearman that is outside the jurisdiction of God's sovereignty. All of them operate under God's sovereign eye. Throughout history, especially biblical history in the Old Testament, God has used pagans, unbelievers, and even God-haters to accomplish his purposes. God has used kings, pharaohs, governments, armies, police for his own purposes. We see this in Old Testament. God uses a pharaoh to allow the exodus to happen. He uses Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, to allow his people entrance back into Israel. God used Octavian, Caesar Augustus, to accomplish his purpose for Jesus Christ to be born in Bethlehem, and these are wicked, ungodly men from historical accounts. And since the last 2,000 years, history almost also demonstrates again that even wicked pagan rulers can reign with God's sovereignty in place. Two brief examples will suffice. King Henry VIII of England, 500 years ago, God used him to bring about the English Reformation in England. The Lord used also, secondly, the wicked and immoral King Charles II in the 17th century to persecute English Puritans and Baptists from whom we get some of the richest soul-edifying works in Christian literature composed in prison cell, including John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress that we've been blessed by or Samuel Rutherford's prison letters. That all happened because God used pagan, unbelieving kings to accomplish his purposes. Proverbs 21 verse 1 indeed rings true throughout history. The king's heart is a stream of water and the hand of Yahweh, he turns it wherever he will. So how should we apply this text to our lives? Well, firstly, I want to tease out an application for some of us that may be here this morning who have not called upon the Lord Jesus for salvation Luke clearly communicates in this text that Jesus is sovereign over all things. Jesus is Lord, full stop. Perhaps you have not surrendered your life to the lordship of Jesus. The message that Jesus is sovereign and his Lord is for you. Repenting from your sin means turning from your sin and bowing to Jesus as Lord. Sin is not a kind master. Turn now to Jesus and embrace him as your new sovereign and your master. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Secondly, for us who do believe in Jesus and love Jesus, I say this, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord and submit to him with a holy calmness. God has a plan for each and every one of us. 
The Lord is aware and control of every minute detail in our lives right now. God is is sovereign over every area of your life, whether you're nine years old here this morning, 39, or 79. God has a specific purpose for each of our lives, and that purpose cannot be stimmied or stopped. We should, therefore, approach our suffering and difficulties of this life by waiting on the Lord with a holy calmness. We might ask at times, Lord, what are you doing in this situation? Why am I going through this? Why am I having a barracks moment as Paul is here in this text? Some of you are going through weighty trials right now. I know some of you are going through intense chronic pain or are you going through treatments. Some of you have a hurtful relationship that desperately needs to be reconciled. Some of you are grieving over a loss that's unspeakable. And some of you, like the Apostle Paul, have a reputation that's being maligned and dragged through the mud. And yet Jesus is still accomplishing his mission and his purposes to save people. And he's using you personally. Nothing will be able to stop Jesus' mission. No one has ever or will ever thwart God's plan. This should be a balm to our souls, should it not? There is no political agenda There's no legislation, there's no bill that will thwart God's purposes for his church. There's no human government that will be able to withstand Christ's church. No corporation, no employer, no earthly entity that can stop Jesus' advance through his church. Challenging situations cannot stop his church. Slander can't stop it. Schisms can't stop it. The government can't stop it. Legislation can't stop it. Your employer can't stop it. Not even the gates of hell will stop his church. Why? Because God is sovereign overall. I know the last few months have been very challenging in this world and in our church. But you know, Jesus is not surprised. Take comfort that he is still sovereign. His mission is still being accomplished and will be accomplished in spite of challenges around us. And nothing, nothing will stop that mission. So I encourage us all to wait upon the Lord with a holy calmness. He will accomplish his purposes for you. God does not work on your own timing. Remember, God's providence is punctual. Let me illustrate this briefly with a selection from C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian. There's a powerfully gripping moment for me in Prince Caspian where Caspian, Dr. Cornelius, uh, the evil dwarf, and Nicobrick are waiting for Aslan to help them against Caspian's uncle Miraz and the Telmarines. And Nicobrick, the evil dwarf, grows impatient waiting for Aslan's arrival. So he prepares to use the power of the white witch. But I love the point where Truffle Hunter, the badger, remember him? He abruptly interrupts this evil plan and he speaks up and he says this, the help will come, said Truffle Hunter. I stand by Aslan. Have patience like us beasts. The help will come. It may be even now at the door. Brothers and sisters, so must we have patience in waiting on the Lord Jesus. The help will come. He is working and he will bring all his sovereign purposes to a fruition. And secondly and finally, this application, I would encourage us to observe the Lord working in your life and surroundings in providential ways. Again, where is God? God is everywhere. 
How do you look at your life, past, your present, your future? Do you see it as merely a sequence of events with no connection to God? Or do you see your life story from conversion to your growth in grace, your vocation, your family, your activities? Do you see it linked to God's divine providence stamped on you? It's one thing to intellectually assent that God is sovereign, but it's another thing to live a life walking with a deep-seated conviction that my Jesus Christ is sovereign over me. Every facet of your life is owned by God. Do you see God in each rhythm of your life? Do you regularly make those connections to God throughout the day? Do you see the Lord working out his perfect sovereign will in the world and in your own personal life? John Flavel, the English Puritan, put this bluntly. It is vile, it is a vile sliding of God not to observe what he manifests of himself and his providences. And he continues on, Oh, fill your hearts with the thoughts of him and his ways. If a single act of providence is so ravishing and transporting, what would many such be if they were presented together to the view of the soul? If one star is so beautiful, what is a constellation? Let your reflections, therefore, upon the acts and workings of providence for you be full, extensively, and intensively. Bethlehem, submit to the Lord's will and mission for your life. Trust the sovereign Lord. Don't underestimate God's sovereignty as the Jewish council and the 40 conspirators did. He will accomplish his purposes, though we might not be able to understand all that's happening around us. Let me close with these words from William Cooper in his 18th century hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. This is one verse. God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet shall be the flower. Jesus Christ is sovereign over all things and nothing, nothing will be able to stop or thwart his mission. May the will of the sovereign Lord be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray. Lord, we're humbled that you are sovereign over us and we bow in adoration and humility and we ask you to work your way in our hearts and lives that we may see that Jesus Christ is sovereign and no one will be able to stop that work and that mission. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 720- 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.